0: Would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Second Samuel chapter six. You can also find the passage printed for you in your bulletin. Second Samuel chapter six. The reason why we're in chapter six tonight is because last week you were in chapter five, and we are continuing on in our study of this book as we look. At chapter 6, we're actually going to spend this week and next week looking at chapter 6. Today we're just going to be looking at the first 15 verses. So I'd invite you to uh, listen along as I read to you 2 Samuel 6, beginning in verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Let's pray together. Father, we come before your word and we desire to understand it, particularly this difficult passage. And we pray that as we read it tonight, that you would be at work through your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and our minds to see what you want us to see from it. Teach us. Teach us by the work of the Holy Spirit about who you are. Help us to have a greater understanding of your presence. We pray, Father, that you would also help us to see your grace. That as we meditate on these things, you would be at work, not just helping us to understand your word, but that we would take it in and believe it and our lives would be changed as a result. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if your knowledge and your understanding of the Ark of the Covenant comes from that 1980s movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is one of my favorite movies. But if that's where your understanding and your knowledge of this Ark comes from, then I'm sad to tell you, you are sorely mistaken. Uh, It's actually a fun movie. It's a fun movie to watch. Uh, And uh, they have a very particular view of the Ark of the Covenant. In the movie, the the, the Ark was a large golden box that was ornately decorated in gold. And when it was opened up, uh, wild flashes of light and fire shot out of the box. Uh, Ghosts with horrific faces came and floated in the room. And uh, uh, everybody that was looking at the Ark, the moment that the lid was lifted off, was immediately melted and vaporized on the spot. It was quite sensational and uh, very, uh, very fitting for the movie theater. However... The Ark of the Covenant that we read about in the Bible was actually something quite different. It was different in what it actually was. It was different in how it functioned in the life of Israel. And it was particularly different in what it revealed, what it represented to the people. The Ark is one of the most important pieces of furniture in the entirety of Scripture. And it played a very significant role in the life of Israel. The Ark helped the Old Testament Israelites to gain an understanding of who God is Of understanding God's promise that he would be their God, they would be his people, and he would never leave them. He would always be with them. And it also gave them an understanding of God's grace and mercy. Last week you were looking at 2 Samuel chapter 5 and you read about David finally being anointed king over all of Israel and his defeat of the Philistines, and then establishing the city of Jerusalem as the capital of the kingdom. And as we turn the page to chapter 6, we see that one of David's first acts as the newly anointed king over all of Israel was to go get the Ark of the Covenant that had been stored in a small town about eight miles west of Jerusalem, and to bring it back to the city. Bring it back to Jerusalem, bring it back into the life of God's people. And as we read this event in these first 15 verses of chapter 6, we see that this event is filled both with great celebration as well as with devastating death. And so what we are reminded of today as we look at this event in the life of God's people is we are reminded about the importance of the presence of God, that it brings blessings, But there are also dangers of being in the presence of God. Today what I want us to do is to look simply at uh, how the scriptures describe the ark. And then we'll look and see uh, what it revealed to the people of God then and also to us now. And then we'll finish by considering what difference this makes for how how we ought to live for the Lord this week ahead. So first of all... What was the Ark of the Covenant? It was about four and a half years ago that I did a sermon series on the Old Testament tabernacle. And you may remember when we went through that series, we looked at the book of Exodus and all of the descriptions that God gave and instructions that God gave for all the various parts of the tabernacle. And we actually spent some time talking about and getting an understanding of this Ark of the Covenant that is described in detail in Exodus chapter 25. Let me give you just a quick recap of what we learned back Then its description was that of a small wooden box. It was about four feet long and two feet tall and about two feet wide. It was covered on the outside and the inside with pure gold. And on the long sides of the ark on the outside, there were rings attached and four 15 foot poles were used, inserted into those rings and then used to transport or to carry the ark. Along the top there was an ornamental border, a molding of gold, and at the very top was a lid, a cover. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Inside the ark there were three things. The first, there was a jar that had some of the actual manna that God had rained down from the sky so that his people could have something to eat while they were traveling in the wilderness. There was a jar of some of that manna that was placed in the ark. The second thing that was in the ark was Aaron's staff that God miraculously caused to bud and to bloom and to produce almonds. And the third thing that was in the ark were the stone tablets that had been given to Moses with God's law, his Ten Commandments, his word engraved on them. Those were the three things that were in the ark that were carried around with Israel wherever they went. Uh, Israel was given very specific instructions about where the ark was to be placed uh, before the temple was built. The uh, temporary tabernacle uh, had a place in the innermost central area of the tabernacle, also in the temple, in the innermost center part of the temple called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And only the high priest of Israel was allowed to enter into that room where the ark was positioned and only one time a year on the day of atonement. That's where the ark was placed, both in the tabernacle and in the temple. But as Israel was traveling in the wilderness, the ark was to be carried according to very specific instructions that God had given to Israel. In 1 Samuel 4, we read a story about Israel taking the ark into battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines won that battle against the Israelites and they captured the ark and they took the ark back to their own cities. And every place the ark went in the Philistine cities, there were plagues that came down on the people and death afflicted the people because how they were treating the Ark. Eventually, they got so fed up with it, they put it on an ox cart and they sent it back to Israel. And it ended up going into a little town called Baal Judah that we read about here in verse 2. And it stayed there for over two decades. And that's where we pick up this story where David says, he's going to go back to this little city, this little town, and to reclaim the Ark out of this little town in uh, Baal Judah and bring it back to the new capital of Jerusalem. The purpose of the ark was it was a sign of God's presence. In fact, some Old Testament scholars have even referred to the ark as a kind of sacrament. And it's not the case that God was incarnate in the ark or on the ark, but God described the ark as being, is pre, being so closely connected with his presence that when we are told in the Bible that the ark was present, we're told that the Lord was presence in that place. When we're told that the ark was moving, we're told that the Lord himself was moving with his people. Let me come back to the cover, the, the lid of the ark. It's specifically described in the scriptures. Uh, Attention and detail is given to the description of the the top the cover, the lid of the ark. And for time's sake uh, today, let me give you just one of the details that is given in the scriptures. It was given a name. The lid, the, the cover was given a name. In Hebrew, it's the word kapar. When that word is used as a verb, it means to make atonement for. When it's used as a noun, it, it means the place, excuse me, the place of atonement. And when that word was brought into the Greek language, the word that was used was to propitiate, the word that we saw earlier in Romans chapter 3. It's the idea of to forgive, or or the place of propitiation, the place that forgiveness takes place. When it was eventually brought into the English language, we use the words mercy seat. Each year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with a bowl of blood that had, been, uh, that had been sacrificed by an unblemished animal. And he would bring that bowl of blood and he would sprinkle the blood of this unblemished, sacrificed animal onto the kapar, onto the propitiation, onto the mercy seat, onto the lid of the ark. It was to signify the cleansing of the sin of the people of God through the shedding of blood. It was this incredible picture. In the very midst of the presence of the Lord, His justice was satisfied as an atonement for sin was signified. Now, as we start to understand all of these details about the ark, it helps us to see what the ark revealed in the life of the people of God. The ark was a picture of God to the people. It showed God as the ultimate royal ruler and king. You can even see that in the language that's used in verse 2. When David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now you probably know that in... Uh, The Old Testament were given various names for Yahweh, for God. And the reason for that is that each of the names helped us to gain an understanding of the attributes of God, of his characteristic. And this word here for the Lord of hosts, the Yahweh of hosts, specifically has the sense or connotation of royalty, of kingship. And then there's this picture of the ark, of the royal King of God's people and of all of creation. In fact, David actually referred to the ark as the footstool of God in, in First Chronicles chapter 28. And that's the picture that we have even here of chapter 2, where we see God sitting on his royal throne with his feet on the cherubim, on the lid of the ark. The ark served as a picture of Yahweh as the royal ruler and king of all creation. But it also gave the people of God a picture of God of being not only the royal ruler and king, but of the revealer and ultimate prophet of his people. Remember that inside of the ark were the stone tablets of God's written word, his law. God had revealed his word. He had revealed his law. He had his people carry it with them wherever they went in the ark so that they might be reminded of it. Much like the prophets of the Old Testament who revealed and declared the Word of God, the ark served as a picture of Yahweh as the great revealer, the revealer of the Word, the ultimate prophet. The ark was a picture not only of God being the royal ruler and king and the revealer and prophet to His people, but also that He was the great reconciler, the great high priest of His people. Remember the lid uh, of the mercy seat, That place of propitiation, that place of atonement and that yearly ceremony that always reminded the people as the high priest would go into the ark and sprinkle the sacrificial blood that God indeed was about the work of reconciling them to himself, serving as their priest. The ark served as a picture of Yahweh as this ultimate reconciler. And as we, as we see that this was the picture that Israel had of God, that he was their royal ruler and king, that he was their revealer and prophet, that he was their reconciler and priest, we can start to understand why David sent such an significant military parade to go and get the ark. That's what's happening in verse 1, where we read that David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, That word chosen men has the connotations of a military gathering. This is a military parade and one of significance. 30,000 of them went to go get the ark. Well, we can understand that it was that kind of significant event because this is the ark that gave them this picture of God. We can also understand and appreciate as we see that why there was so much celebrating taking place. Look again at verse 5. We read that David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And we read in verses 12 and following that David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed animals and then danced before the Lord with all his might. He was wearing a linen ephod. And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of a horn. This was a celebration. This was a party in this eight mile stretch from this little town west of Jerusalem to the city of Jerusalem. David and the people of God knew that the ark gave them this incredible picture of who God was. Their ultimate king and prophet and priest. But they also understood something else. They not only knew that this gave them such a wonderful picture of who who God was, but they also understood because God had taught them that the ark represented the very presence of God. They were bringing the very presence of the Lord God Almighty into the fellowship of the Israel people. And they, they knew that as the presence of God was in their midst, that meant that there would be blessing for them. After all, that they saw that firsthand. Uh, we'll see why here in just a minute. But if you look in verses 10 and 11, you'll notice that the ark took a detour on the way to Jerusalem. David and the military parade had gone and gotten the ark and they had left the city, the town west of Jerusalem. They were on their way. And they took a detour, and we'll see why here in just a second. But what I want you to notice in verses 10 and 11 is that the detour ended up having the ark go to the house of this man that we actually get his name, I think, four or five times in these couple of verses. God wanted us to know the name of Obed-Edom. The ark went to his house, and it stayed there for three months, we're told. And while the Ark of the Covenant was there, what are we told happened to to Obed-Edom and his family? Look at what it says. The Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household, so much so that when David heard about it in verse 12, he immediately went to Obed-Edom's house to get the Ark, to bring it to Jerusalem. That's why David's people... And, the, and David himself responded the way they did with this this music and this dancing and this singing as they went to go get the art and to bring it into the city of Jerusalem because they re, they understood that this was the presence of God in their midst and with the presence of God comes blessing. When you're in a relationship with the Lord, being in His presence means blessing. That should move the people of God To want to worship the Lord with joy and celebration. We're going to talk about that more next week. But what I want you to reflect on here for just a moment is that when we are in relationship with the Lord, there is nothing better. There is nothing more satisfying. There is nothing that will bring more contentment to us than being in the very presence of God and having his blessings over us. We also have to recognize that being in the presence of God not only brings blessing for God's people, but there's also danger in being in God's presence. That's what we read about in verses 3 through 10 and the story of this man named Uzzah. Now, what's going on? What's going on in this story? If if you read it and you're honest, it's probably a little bit surprising. Uh, perhaps it's even shocking and perhaps... For some, it's even offensive. I mean, it seems like Uzzah was simply trying to be helpful. He was simply trying to do something that would be commended by God. It seems like God should rain down thanksgiving and commendation for Uzzah instead of killing him. I mean, after all, don't we talk about God being loving and gracious and patient and long-suffering? What's going on here? Well, to understand and appreciate what happened in this story, we need to know that God, years before this event took place, God had given very specific and very detailed instructions to the people of God about how the ark was to be moved and transported. Because the ark so closely was tied with the very presence of God, To be in the presence of the ark was a very serious business. The ark was only to be moved with the highest degree of respect and seriousness. And here were the requirements for moving it. First, it had to be covered completely with goat skin. Uh, That was a requirement so that it actually couldn't be seen while it was being moved. Uh, There was a sense that it was wrong to look on the ark because of the holiness of God, that that it was so holy that to look on it would be be wrong. And so it was covered with goatskin. Secondly, not only was it covered with goatskin because it wasn't supposed to be seen, it was only to be moved by carrying it with those designated poles in the golden rings on the outsides of the ark. It was never to be touched. Again, recognizing the holiness of God. And thirdly, it was only to be moved by a very specific designated group of people from the Levites. You couldn't just go get Joe and ask him to help move the ark with you. It had to be only this specific group of designated people that was passed down generation after generation... They were the only ones who could move the ark. David failed to implement any of these specific instructions and the consequences were devastating. You'll notice in verse 8 that we're told that when Uzzah was killed, David was angry. Now you can kind of pick it up in the English and it's even more clear in the Hebrew, but we're not really told where David's anger was Going toward. Was it toward God? Was it toward Uzzah? I think you can also think of it as being toward himself. I mean, after all, that's why David goes on in the next couple of verses and talks about how afraid he was of the Lord and how afraid he was of the ark. He recognized that as one of his very first actions as the anointed king over all of Israel had been a failure Because David had failed to lead in the instructions that he certainly would have known and understood. Uzzah was not only not one of the designated Levites, but he reached out and touched the ark as it traveled on an ox cart. And as the ox stumbled, he reached out and grabbed it in order to steady it. And because he did that, we're told that the Lord struck him down. We're even told that the Lord broke out against uh, Uzzah. It's the same word that you saw last week in chapter 5 where you read about the Lord breaking out against the Philistines. There is a sense in which it would have been better for the Ark of the Covenant to fall onto the ground and to get muddy with the unpolluted dirt of the earth than to be touched by the hand of a sinfully polluted man. As we, as we understand what happened and we see the seriousness of the sin in the presence of God, we can start to understand some takeaways for us this evening. The first is this. There's a warning here to take God seriously. Being in the presence of a perfectly holy Lord God Almighty is something that we must take with the most seriousness. It's even more poignant when we realize that we are always in the presence of God. His presence is everywhere. One commentator put it this way. If the shock of Uzzah's death offends us as it did David, the most likely explanation is that we have not comprehended the enormous offense of our sin or the perfect holiness of God that cannot abide such desecration as we have committed. There is nothing more serious in this world than being an unrepentant sinner in the presence of the Holy God. Now that's certainly true for those who are not in a relationship with the Lord. If you're not a Christian, if you've not been united to Christ by faith, then you must understand how serious the situation is. Think of it this way. If Uzzah suffered a temporal death, For violating God's law, how much greater is the risk for those who are not even in a relationship with the Lord, not of a temporal death, but of eternal death for rejecting the Lord? John 3 verse 36 says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. To be in the presence of God and not in a relationship with Him means wrath and eternal judgment from the Holy Lord God Almighty. But there is good news. There is the good news of the Gospel that there is eternal life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it comes only through Jesus It is only through Jesus that our spiritual thirst can be quenched. Many of you are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's wonderful tale. Um, We think of it often as a children's story. But there are profound truths and, and deep truths in the entirety of that series that are for all of us, uh, no matter what age we are. Uh, In the silver chair, uh, we see the beginning of the book. We see this young girl named Jill, and she finds herself alone in a forest, and she's seen a lion that we know is Aslan, the Christ figure. She's very afraid, and she's desperately thirsty as she's in the woods. She Hears what she thinks is the, the trickling of a stream of water, and so she begins to make her way toward it so that she can quench her thirst. And listen to what happens. The wood was so still that it was not difficult to decide where the sound was coming from, it grew clearer every moment. And sooner than she expected, she came to an open glade and saw the stream, bright as glass, running across the turf a stone's throw away from her. But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. It lay with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front of it like the lions in Trafalgar Square. She knew at once that it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away, as if it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill, and if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried. And she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt that she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink, said the lion. They were the first words she had heard since Scrub, that was her friend, had spoken to her on the edge of the cliff. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. And of course, she remembered what Scrub had said about animals talking in other world and realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, stronger, a sort of heavy golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in rather a different way. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this only with a look and a very low growl and as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now. Without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Those of you that are familiar with the series know that the lion is Aslan. It's the Christ figure in the story. And it's this wonderful picture for us. There is no other stream that can quench our spiritual thirst. It is only the Lord Jesus Christ that can quench our spiritual thirst. There is no other living water that can give us... What we need. There is no other way to be in the presence of a holy God and have eternal life except to be in Christ. Put your faith in King Jesus and have your spiritual thirst quenched with the gospel of God's grace and mercy. I think there's a, before we move on to our last takeaway, I think there's a a word of warning here for God's people as well, for Christians. There's a word of seriousness here. The Bible is clear. Even for Christians, unrepentant sin is not tolerated by the Lord. God will not let his people stay in a place of unrepentant sin. He disciplines us in love and there can be painful consequences as a result. Oh, we will never lose our eternal life. We will never lose our status as God's beloved adopted children. But the Lord disciplines those he loves in love. And it can be painful in this life. So if you're a Christian and you are living knowingly an ongoing unrepentant sin, you need to take it seriously seriously. Repent of it and turn away from it and turn again to the Lord, remembering His grace and His mercy and His promise to always forgive as those of His children come to Him asking for forgiveness. And as we think about that, it leads us to our second and final takeaway, and that's this. There is indeed true hope for those who are in Christ Jesus. You notice that we don't have the Ark of the Covenant here At the front of the room. We're not hiding it in some back closet. It's not in some special room that uh, you don't get to go into. No, we don't have the Ark of the Covenant anymore. Why not? Because we don't need it. We have Jesus. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the Ark of the Covenant. The ark gave a picture of God as the prophet and priest and king of his people. And when Jesus came into this world, he perfectly fulfilled that picture in every way. He came as the greater and ultimate Priest of the people of God as he came and gave his life. He came as the greater and, and more ultimate prophet as he brought us the word of God as he is the word of God. He, he shows us that he is the greater and ultimate king as he is seated in, royal, in the royal throne reigning and ruling. Jesus is our great high priest. He entered into the the greater holy of holies of heaven itself. And he sprinkled not the blood of sacrificed animals, but his own blood that was shed on the cross. Jesus became our mercy seat. He is the propitiation for our sins. The payment for our sins. So now, if you are in Christ, you have the greatest of all hopes. You have the smiling, gracious, loving, long-suffering presence of God in your midst. And you have the blessing of God over you. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That doesn't mean that life will always be easy. It doesn't mean that life will always be full of happiness, but what it does mean is that no matter the circumstances in our life, our status in the family of God will never change because it is anchored in Jesus Christ and we have the assurance as God's people of his blessing. Even when we go through trials and difficulties and distress in this life, we remember the Lord has promised to be with us and we are never alone and we are never forgotten and never forsaken. The Lord is at work in our midst, preserving us and strengthening us and pruning us and preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that even as we read your word and reflect on it this evening, that your, your spirit, the Holy Spirit, would be at work helping us in our unbelief. We believe. Help us in our unbelief. We pray, Father, that as we have faith, we recognize it as a weak faith so often. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work taking your word and strengthening our faith. Give us the strength of faith that we need this week to believe what you say is true about us. And as we go about our week, help us to love you and obey you in the way that only can be done as your Holy Spirit enables us and strengthens us. We pray that you would do this for the glory of your name and for the sake of our Savior and for the good of your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.